Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. This life is too damn short to be making somebody else money. So, you know, everybody has something they can do. And if you can identify any aspect of that, and you know, of course it changes all the time. There were so many different aspects of things I wanted to do and I'm super scattered in that way, but just finding something, you know, that your kid's interested in and being like, Hey, yeah, <laughs> you should probably try and do that because, you know, I, I know we're all afraid of the idea that, you know, it won't, it won't work out and you'll be a starving artist or whatever these things are. But, you know, that's sort of, you know, disingenuous to the many, many people that actually do make it doing this stuff. So I think anything is really viable as long as they have a desire for it and a drive for it, just, you know, push them to, to keep at it and work hard for what they want to achieve. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Ella, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you so much for having me. Stoked to be here. It is my pleasure to have you here. So uh, I found out about your work because you wrote in and you told me that when anything is not to your own specifications, you make it yourself. And when I saw the line, I'd even create my own underwear, I thought, okay, this is somebody I have to talk to. Anybody who creates their own underwear is certainly unmistakable. But before we get into all of that, uh, I was asking you, where were you born and raised? And what impact did that end up having on the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career and where you've ended up today? So I was born in Malibu, California. My mother was one of those wacky hippies that just had a kid by herself in her bathroom one night <laughs> with no doctor, no nurse, no midwife. And then um, she decided that it was a good idea to 
swim her baby in the ocean because um, we lived right on the beach at the time in my grandfather's um, house there. And she would take me out and swim me in the ocean because apparently babies don't need to learn how to swim. They already swim. So I never learned how to swim because I never forgot how to swim. So she just would like throw the baby in the water and you just swim like little fish or something. So anyway, that's where I was born. And then I ended up moving through various means up to the mountains and lived in the mountains of Fraser Park. So like about an hour and a half or so outside LA going up north at the top of the grapevine and, um, you know, sort of lived in mountains and trees with goats and chickens and horses and all the animal type things that you can imagine. And yeah, my, my mom and my stepdad when I was five and he's a super creative person and just want to inspire as well, who, you know, wants to make something wants to sort of encourage you to do something creative yourself. And that was a really great, I think, base for me because I can be kind of scattered. So having somebody that was like, oh, let's go and paint this today or let's go and do this today or wow, that looks so good was definitely really encouraging for my creative process during that that time frame. And my sister was always my older sister is like unbelievably creative as well. And being, you know, a few years older and also arguably much more talented at these things was always sort of that like benchmark of where I was always trying to basically through my stepdad's encouragement and all of that. I just kept going at it, even though I knew she was better than me and things. And it sort of just increased my drive to want to be better at stuff. And especially being able to see somebody that at least in my mind was way better at what I wanted to do than I was. It was just sort of this like, okay, you can see someone doing that. And you just have to work really hard till you can get there. And that was sort of the baseline for all of my desire to create things was watching somebody that I was like, you're way better than me. And I could totally get there if I work really hard. And that desire to work really hard just had always sort of been there and wanting to make things better than than they are. But now I live up in up in the Bay Area next to the ocean again. So my my creativity is definitely spurred on by large bodies of water as well. You know, one thing I wonder about is you know, you mentioned being raised by hippie parents, and that is pretty much the exact opposite of being raised by Indian parents. And so I wonder what were the narratives that you were raised with about making your way in the world? My mom can pretty much do anything (laughs) or she certainly has done an awful lot and was very on the DIY side of of things growing up. She made her own teepee. She sewed her own teepee. She had teepee poles and she walked up to someone's just house in random Washington and knocked on the door and was like, hey, can I set up my teepee and live in your backyard? And they were like, yeah, it's fine. (laughs) She lived there and milked cows and and, you know, just did every interesting thing that, that, you know, she wanted to do. She was super into horses. And so she, now she works with, with horses. She's a farrier. So she puts shoes on horses and trims their feet and all that good stuff. But for a while there, she had her own business where she made these little flower things that like clip into your hair and she traveled all over the place and she had employees. And then she's also a pilot. And so she flew places on her airplane And she's just one of those people that has a lot of ideas and has really taken and rolled with a lot of them in her life to make, you know, a lot of different sort of directions of her vision come true at different points in her life, which is really inspiring to me because she just would sort of pivot whenever something wasn't working. And I think that's such an important aspect of, you know, being creative and building your own 
sort of life is, you know, you have to identify when things aren't working and then just shift to something else. So, you know, she's the kind of person where when all my crazy ideas that I came up with would sort of show up, she'd just be like, yeah, you should do that. It's a great idea. <laughs> like I went to college in Scotland knowing absolutely no one to study a degree that nobody cares about. <laughs> it's totally unemployable. And she was like, that's great. And then in my last year in college, when I was getting ready to come back, and I was trying to figure out what I was going to do to, you know, continue being creative and still make my my bills get paid. And I came across this, you know, video about these old tiny houses and you build them on trailers and then you can pull them around with a vehicle and move them all over the place. And I was like, yep, that ought to do it. If I can't afford to pay a lot of bills, I'll just make the bills smaller. And so I called her up and I was like, hey, I know I've never built anything before, but I want to move home. I want to build this little tiny house in your driveway, move up to the Bay Area and just... <laughs> be a starving musician. And she was like, yeah, cool. That sounds great. You should do that. So she's just been this person that's always sort of just like, you know, encouraging to a T for every somewhat ridiculous idea that I have. And it's, it's definitely molded me as a person to feel much more capable of doing things, if only to know that there's somebody behind me that doesn't think I'm a total wacko. One of the, the, you know, the two questions that come from this one is, is, you know, what advice would you give to parents who are listening to this just based on sort of this, you know, endless encouragement that you got um, from your mother? Because I think there are two sides to this coin. Sometimes I think parents can be encouraging to a fault and, you know, encourage unrealistic ambitions in their kids, which often lead to disappointment. Um, but then there's the flip side of that where they don't encourage anything at all and pretty much discourage any crazy idea. Um, so based on your sort of upbringing, what would you say to parents who are listening to this? Man, that's such a tricky one because I feel like so I feel like so much of this is dependent on, you know, whatever sort of nature you have built into this person. And it's a, sort of a malleable thing. And, you know, you don't necessarily know how your incursion is going to be taken. Cause I definitely think if I were set up with a different um sort of baseline, just like whatever makes me up as a person and somebody were that encouraging, then it could have, it could have like backfired. So I, I, I wish that if it seems like there should be an easy way to be like, yeah, just be like encouraging is all hell. But, you know, I think there's definitely some, some balance in there because, you know, I mean, she's so, she's the most like complimentary encouraging person ever. And like, you know, it's super annoying for me because I'm just like, you know, whatever mom, but you know, if I, if I were a different person, my head could be huge. I could be a total dick these days. I'm like, yeah, my mom thinks I'm amazing and I'm super amazing. <laughs> but, um, I, I really don't know. I mean, I, I think it's best to just like, you know, I was really, really um, passionate about these things and I worked really hard at them. And I think, I think the sort of like distinction and the difference is that like, or something that you should pay most attention to. Is, and this is something that my mom has always said. And, and someone gave her this advice when she was, you know, having troubles with my sister and I when we were younger. And, you know, they just said, well, find out what she really cares about and, you know, push her to do that and make her, you know, make her really for it, like help her get what she wants, but make her work for it. And I think she just sort of took that idea and, and just rolled with it. And, you know, I was always really, you know, creating all kinds of things and, and, and doing stuff and coming up with all these ideas. And, and, you know, I think she just sort of, kept encouraging us to keep doing, you know, what we liked. And you know, she's very unconventional. And and I think what I really liked about her encouragement was you know, I was a very nervous child. I felt like I had to 
you know, I don't know, become a dentist or like marry a millionaire or something if my life was going to work, even though I knew that I loved all this creative stuff. Like even as a kid, my sort of fears were that like, I almost knew that it was unlikely for those things to actually work for me. And so having the encouragement was super important. So I think if I personally didn't have an encouraging parent, I don't know if I would have had the balls to actually, you know, make this stuff happen on my own. Cause I was like, you know, okay, I'm going to live at home forever. I'm not going to go to college. For some reason, I always felt like dentistry was going to be my like fall to like go back to job, <laughs> which is funny because I it, I can't imagine it's a very easy thing to do at all. And it, I have zero interest in it whatsoever. But I was like, well, if everything else fails and I lose my art, I'll just become a dentist. Very practical, um, <laughs> very strange, practical child. But having my mom's encouragement and having, you know, the encouragement of my stepdad as well, just sort of solidified to me that I could just keep doing this stuff. And even if it was just, you know, my way of pulling myself out of my hard days and, you know, my little funks and depressions, then it was worth doing anyway. So eventually it just kind of kept going and, and I kept coming up with new ideas and they kept saying, yeah, you should probably try that. And then, you know, that really built me up as a person. So I mean, take it with a grain of salt is what I'd say. But I mean, I think encouragement, if it's something important, you know, if it's like, I mean, you probably shouldn't, I mean, I don't know if it was great for mom to be like, you're the most talented person in that world. You know, she she really dumped the praise on, but, you know, encouraging someone to to work at what they, they like and to pursue something that, you know, is maybe unconventional, but really makes them happy. You know, using your creative brain to to take something that's, you know, generally speaking, not really that profitable, but using your creativity to make it into something that works in some way is one of the things that just gets my brain going and really fuels me to to keep going. So, you know, using your, even just using your creative for what you want to do and try and find a way to make it work for you because this life is too damn short to be making somebody else money. So, you know, everybody has something they can do. And if you can identify any aspect of that. And you know, of course it changes all the time. There were so many different aspects of things I wanted to do and I'm super scattered in that way. But just finding something, you know, that your kid's interested in and being like, hey, yeah, <laughs> you should probably try and do that because, you know, I, I know we're all afraid of the idea that, you know, it won't it won't work out and you'll be a starving artist or whatever these things are. But, you know, that's sort of, you know, disingenuous to the many, many people that actually do make it doing this stuff. So I think anything is really viable as long as they have a desire for it and a drive for it, just, you know, push them to, to keep at it and work hard for what they want to achieve. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, a follow-up to that is, uh, you know, we had a guest here and he was describing some, you know, friend of his who had been raised by parents who were, you know, super sort of enlightened, self-actualized, you know, had a lot of self-improvement in their life. And, he, you know, her trauma was that basically oh, yes. her parents were too perfect. Uh, I would, what are the things that you thought were a pain in the ass about the, the way your um, mother Well, you? my mom was real late. I say was in the past tense as though it's something that's magically fixed itself, but it totally hasn't like hours late for shit. Like, not that there's anything wrong with that. You know, it builds you as a person, but like just so late, you can barely imagine it. (laughs) And like, we had our harp lessons every week on Fridays at like six or whenever we had them. And like, you know, we just couldn't really be any later to these things. And (laughs) luckily my harp teacher just kind of rolled with it. But like, that was probably one of the more difficult things. And also like, she was so positive that it was like super annoying sometimes because she'd just be like, you know, be like, oh, we're hours late and everything's fine. <laughs> it's like, 
what? <laughs> I don't think so. Of course, you know, if it was something that she was late for, it was a little slightly different different story. But, you know, something we're late for, it's like, oh, it all works out. And I'm just sitting there, like, imploding in the backseat. Like, what the f-? I'm like, I don't think it's fine. But, you know, what's interesting is that, like, so both of my grandparents, um, my mom and my dad actually grew up next to each other. They, their their dads were both like, you know, the, the sort of exception to the rule, successful musicians that were, you know, made it enough that they lived on the beach in Malibu next to each other. And um, mostly by coincidence, but pretty cool because there's not that many other, you know, full-time musicians in different aspects that make their way to be in next door neighbors, um, especially, you know, in the 40s in Malibu on this sort of random beach stretch. But um, they both had totally made it. Like my grandpa was a, my my dad's dad was a composer, arranger, conductor, and he worked with Frank Sinatra and Louis Armstrong and Nat King Cole and, and uh, Judy Garland and stuff. So he had his, you know, shit all together. And then my mom's dad was a, was a, like a band leader. He played the saxophone and he was a studio musician. He was in and out of all, you know, Fox Orchestra and he had a band at Disneyland. And so What's interesting is that both of my parents in their own creative ways also were so in the shadow of their parents that neither of them, despite being quite musical in their own right, never actually did anything with music. And so I think that my mom's sort of almost perceived like suppression that she had as a person to not really pursue music because not only, you know, was her dad sound musical, but her older sisters were super musical. And she, you know, you know, you get picked on the third, third girl, you know, and the two older ones sort of band together. And I think she just sort of, you know, just kind of turned against that, that side of her. And my dad describes, it's so funny. I think he, he continued to play piano until he was like, I don't know, like nine or 11 or something like that. And he describes himself as being just good enough to be wretched. (laughs) And it's like, you know, when you have these people looking over you and, and you feel like this is, you know, something that you aren't going to be able to achieve, then I think it really impacts that. And, you know, they're both, you know, true stories of people that took off with what the, you know they found important and just, and just rolled with it. You know, my dad is a sports writer and he's never had a business card because he's never needed one. He's worked for the San Francisco Chronicle for like 30 something years. He's just, you know, totally stuck with what he wanted to do. And obviously my mom's all in her horse stuff. And my stepdad works in the Hollywood industry, movie industry, moving trees around because he's an arborist and he likes trees and it's the cutest thing ever. But, you know, they all sort of did their own thing. But I think it was, I think having, you know, my mom, having been in a situation where somebody that was in her family, she felt like it was something she couldn't really achieve for whatever reason, she was really like, you guys are playing music, you're doing all the creative things, you can do whatever you want. And I think not necessarily that her parents didn't say those kinds of things to her, but for whatever reason, the impact was just that like, this is, you know, I can't make it to that level. So I'm just going to find my own thing and do that. So I didn't really get that from my parents because my mom was just Mm. so, you know, delightfully all over the place. Um, But yeah, I think there's definitely the fear of like, you know, having this thing. And I never met my grandparents and like, obviously I always wanted to, but like, you know, (laughs) in in a way I'm like, well, maybe that wouldn't have been so good because then I would have had that same fear, you know. They always just kind of got to be in my head as like invisible support for, you know, my endeavors, I guess. But Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. 
Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. Aweber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition? They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You, so one thing that I get the sense of just from listening to the way that you describe your mother is that she was this incredibly resourceful person. Um, and the reason that that just, you know, struck me was because I just recently wrote a blog post about the value of resourcefulness. And um, there's this movie called The Gods Must Be Crazy. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh, but- oh, my God. My mother played we watched that movie incessantly, <laughs> like, incessantly. Like I could hum you the music. I could tell you the lines. That is so funny. I have never heard anyone else reference that film. That's so funny. Well, I mean, the reason I brought that up is, is you, obviously, you know, you know, like this, you know, tribe of Kalahari Bushmen take something that yeah. most of us would consider just absolute garbage, a Coke bottle and find all these different uses for it. Um, and, yes. uh, you know, I, I wonder, what is it that enables a person to build that kind of resourcefulness into their life? Because, I, I, you know, I mean, even venture capitalists will say that one of the things they notice in founders when they get a round of funding is that once they have an abundance of resources, they become less resourceful than they were in the past because they don't have to be anymore. Um, and, I, right. you know, and I've seen that pattern in myself as well. And I, I wonder, you know, what did your mom teach you about being resourceful and, and how do people build that in themselves? Yes, you know, and I was I was listening to some TED Talk, however, and it made such an impact because it was somebody, and I'm totally butchering this probably. <laughs> I'm sure the person is not listening, but if they are, I'm sorry, but I'm uh, summarizing your TED Talk terribly. Um, but they were talking, it was someone in education and they were effectively talking about, um, you know, like what made people successful, you know, like what made children 
um, you know, in, in whatever they, tr- they, you know, pursued, like, what was it that made those people more successful, you know, in the sort of general ways that we accept as success. And basically they were sort of trying to identify what it was and, and what they, you know, what they labeled this thing was, was grit. And what I thought was just so fascinating is that if anything, you know, t- basically talent and grit are, are not connected. If anything, they're almost inversely related in the sense that, you know, the people that have more grit it, in a, a lot of, <laughs> a lot of the, you know, percentages actually have <laughs> very little talent and people that have tons and tons of talent don't necessarily have the grit. And if anything, are almost less likely in some ways to have grit than, you know, people that, that have less talent than that anyway. And one of the things that I've always, you know, sort of held as, as really valuable in my life as something that's very dear to me is that, you know, I was sort of aware that at least in the sort of creative arts, maybe slightly more so in music than my sister, but at least in the creative arts, I really didn't have talent in that regard. I wanted to do it. And, you know, all kids are creative, you know, and you you make a thing, you draw a stick figure and you're like, yeah, that's you. And (laughs) this is me, you know, you kids do that. But, you know, especially as you get older, you sort of, you know, you lose that, especially when, you know, you sort of realize that you aren't that good at it and that other people are better than you. And then you just kind of bounce out. But I, you know, just didn't really care that everybody was better than me. I didn't really care that I wasn't good at it because I just had this idea that like I could do it. I could make something happen. It was like, it was the focus and the dedication that was going to get me through it. And even if I didn't, you know, I started sewing when I was like, I started trying to sew. My sister sewed like a dress that was like an actual, you can tell this is a dress dress (laughs) when she was seven. And I tried forever. And like, finally, when I was like 19 in college, after trying so many times and I'd make something and I'd just, you know, bugger my way through the whole thing and it would be horrible. (laughs) <laughs> and I would see a mistake and I was like, I'm going to just keep going and pretend this mistake never happened. And it's like, well, that's not a good idea. <laughs> and then, you know, the dress is garbage on the other side. And finally, when I was 19, I was like, you know what? You this time are going to learn from your mistakes and you are going to start sewing a dress. And this time, if you mess up, you're going to stop and then you're going to go back. You're going to fix it. And then you're going to keep going. And you're not like, I was like, this time I'm going to make darn dress. I'm going to continue working on this thing until it looks like a dress and so there. And it took me like a pretty long time. And it's not the greatest dress in the world, but it was like, finally, just the, just because I have never been able to succeed at this before, just because everything I've made has been a total disaster. And the one thing I made that was halfway decent, but it was brown, which is like a terrible color. I made like a poo skirt and then I squashed it and it shrank and it was like, this is now my mini poo skirt. And it was so depressing. But like, even after all of that, it was just like, yeah, well, just because that didn't work, it's probably because of my process. It's probably not because, you know, it's probably because I just didn't listen to the thing that was like, oh, you messed that up. You should probably go back. And you know, that sort of like grit is something that I'm really grateful to have because it just means that, you know, failures are are not as big of a deal because you just sort of roll with it. And it's like, if it's something that's important to me, I'm just going to keep trying again, you know, and like everything that I make now has taken me so much time and I've worked so hard at it. And I really didn't have any, I don't think sort of natural direction any, uh, any more than the average child has towards creativity. But, you know, whatever that thing is just kind of kept me going. And I really don't know how you put that into people. I don't know if it's something that you, you know, have or you don't. I know that you can always work at anything. But something in someone's mindset, you know, if it like if someone doesn't think they can, then that kind of kills it anyway. So 
and, you know, and obviously you can shift that and, and change it to, you know, a more positive and sort of resourceful kind of mindset, but I don't know exactly mm-hmm. what, yeah, I don't really know what makes people keep going at those kinds of things. And honestly, yeah. like my sister's an unbelievably creative person and she's really picking up her grit now and starting to do stuff with it. But there was a really long time there where, you know, she just kind of was so creative and she could just like shit out this perfect creativity every moment of every day. <laughs> and she just didn't. And, I, you know, or she would and be like, oh, I only painted this. And I'm like, what the hell? It's like, that's the prettiest thing ever. But, um, you know, I definitely think it's, it's something, I think it's helpful to know this kind of stuff. Like, I think it's helpful to know as a kid that like, you don't have to be good at something. Like, you don't have to be good at anything at all. Like, you can like something, you can make something your job, honestly. And you can be not naturally talented in it. Like it's not really about how good you are at something. It's how hard you're going to work for it. And some people don't really have the desire to do that, you know, and some people do, but I've always, you know, sort of wondered like, what is this mixed bag of grit? Is it like when you're, you know, going out of the world, it's like, oh, you just evenly disperse it or like throw some this way. And like, but I know that like knowing that that's a thing and knowing that your own perseverance and dedication can get you so much further is something that's really useful to talk about because it's really, you know, like something that I always think about is like, it's you, it's just you and yourself, like your entire life. Obviously you go through all these different stages of things and, you know, new things come your way and pass by and all that. But like, it's you and your creativity and your mind and your brain, yourself for your entire life. And like somehow thinking about things like that, it's just like, oh, like, what do I want to do? Or like, or like, how could I keep working on this thing? Like the time goes away anyway. So you might as well be spending it on something that you're going to get something out of, you know? And even if it's just the yeah. self, you know, forwarding of just being like, okay, I'm going to keep working at this thing that I super suck at. <laughs> so uh, you've alluded to your sister multiple times throughout this conversation. Uh, and I had to ask you, uh, you know, when you brought her up the first time, she, you mentioned that she was naturally good at all these things that you were not good at and that she was actually better than you. <laughs> and what I wonder is how you prevent that from becoming an inferiority. Uh, how, how do you prevent that from becoming an inferiority complex and using it as a source of motivation? Because I think it could have easily become an inferiority complex for people. I mean, I, there are moments in my life where I'm like, oh, my sister is far smarter than I am. Um, yeah. And I still think that like, even to my parents, I'm like, she's smarter than all of us. She's smarter than you guys. Like if you're in a room with my sister, she's the smartest person in the room. Yeah. And my sister is way smarter than me. Um, but I think, I don't know. I'm sort of undeterred in a lot of ways. And, and it doesn't mean that like, you know, I think for me, a lot of it also is that in my sort of downtime, like in my, you know, and I mean, just saying it out there, I don't know if this is true for everybody, but like, there has to be just so much of a greater percentage of mental health issues with creative people. Because, you know, first of all, everybody tells you that it's not going to work. And second of all, you know, just just the sort of mindset, I think, that that allows the creativity also allows a lot of the, you know, sort of filters that I think a lot of people keep in place to, you know, keep from going insane by how horrible the world can be is just like, you know, you're seeing more of that, I think, as a creative, and you're you're taking more of that in. There's more of like the sort of burden of everything, because at least from what I can tell anyway, and people that I know that are creative as well, is it's like, that those filters are just 
you know, they let them some things in sometimes where it's like, wow, I shouldn't have let that in. Like now I'm going to freak out about this thing for however long or cry about these people that, you know, I know aren't, aren't getting what they need, you know? And it's like, it's, it's hard to have that kind of openness in your mind to let in all of this stuff. That's super scary. And, and, and just in general, like, I think, you know, the mental health aspect for musicians, creatives, artists, that whole sort of vocation is just so, is so, is so prevalent. And for me, whenever I got stuck, you know, in, in those places, like even as a kid, like the, the, the way that my body trained me to get out of those was to make things and was to create something. And there's basically, there's basically two things I know that will get me out of something. And it's some form of creativity or cleaning. And I fucking hate cleaning. So it's <laughs> going to be, <laughs> it's not going to be that. We'll put it that way. So I'll turn, turn to, you know, creativity and trying to, trying to make things happen in that regard. And I don't know if it's necessarily, I've never really talked to my sister about that to find out if she pulls herself out of things with that or not. But I think that sort of set the stage because, you know, when I get depressed about stuff and I get bummed out about stuff, creativity, you know, and even though I'm sort of under the shadow of something that, that is probably, you know, better in some way, I'm still, I'm still pushed. I'm still driven to do that thing. So it's, it's almost less of like, you know, I think of, you know, people are like, oh, you know, I'm, 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 I'm driving this creativity or something. And it's like, but when you're really being driven by something, there's less of a, there's less of a choice to it. It's just, it's just sort of like a coping mechanism or like a, like an automatic reaction that just kind of shows up when you're in this situation. It's like, oh, okay, we're faulting out time to make something. <laughs> so I don't know. There's something in that, that definitely always kind of keeps me going. And, you know, what's good is that, you know, she was never like, you can't draw. And if she had been, that would have been a lot worse. Like she wasn't telling me I couldn't do things. She was just very casually proving to me how much better she was at everything. But she wasn't trying to do it in like a super competitive way. She would just make something to be great. And then I tried to make something and it wasn't very good. And my stepdad would be like, Ellie, that's amazing. And I was like, okay, well, someone thinks it's good. And, you know, I, I think it was just sort of like, you know, she wasn't, being a jerk about it. And my other sources were supportive enough that I just kind of kept going in it. But I definitely think that there's the the potential for some real loss of creativity to happen there. Because, you know, especially as children, when you're, you know, everything that everyone's saying holds more, more weight in a lot of ways, you know, when you hold on to those things a lot. Yeah. So I really didn't get squished, even though she was better than me, no one squished me. And like, I don't know if that's replicable in other people's lives, but like not being squished and the continuous drive to make things out of my personal misery, I think sort of kept that from being something that that's, you know, that stopped my progression. Yeah. Um, well, we have to talk about music because, you know, I know that you play the harp and the only thing I ever remember about people who play the harp, I remember one of my friends, cause I was a band geek. I played the tuba and one of my nice. really good friends, uh, in, you know, ninth grade was a cellist. And he said, there's only one thing, you know, about harp players in the orchestra. It's always the most beautiful woman in the orchestra who plays the harp. <laughs> like that's literally the stereotype is. And when I saw your pictures, I was just like, yeah, that seems to be validated here. Um, <laughs> but, um, uh, so one, what made you choose the harp of all the instruments you could have chosen? Because that's such a rant. I mean, that's almost as obscure as the tuba, but far more useful and a far more pleasant sounding instrument than a tuba. 
Oh my God. That's so funny. Um, yeah, you know, all, all credit for music goes to my mom. Like she, she just, you know, she didn't do music because her dad did music and her sisters were better at piano than she was. And they sang better than she did. And so when it came around to us, she was like, yeah, you're playing music. (laughs) It was almost like, you know, sort of the opposite of like, well, you're taking music lessons. There wasn't And not that we weren't interested in it, but she was just like, you're playing music. So, you know, I think when my older sister was like two, she had all these little like music for little people, like magazines or something, or, you know, various little things that she'd somewhere in all the, I don't know, hippie stores or something. And she ended up buying this little harp and it was like absolute garbage. And it was tiny and it's it's like basically like a cigar box with strings and um, you know, we did nothing with it for ages. I, I think we were really, really little when she got it. And, you know, the only thing the harp did for us was like, <laughs> we put a string on it and like tied it to our backs and banged it into walls and pretended we were harp, you know, the harp and Jack and the Beanstalk. And like, we didn't do anything with the thing, but it, it looked pretty. And so we'd sort of wail away on it. And then, you know, she asked everyone in the family, cause we had a lot of musicians like, Oh, do you know anyone that plays the harp or any harp teachers or anything? And nobody really had any ideas of, of what to do with it. And then one day, when I was in, in school, one of the brief times that I was in regular school and one of the absolute nanoseconds in time where my mother was actually at the school that I was at, like doing some parent something like, I don't know, volunteering or whatever you do. And one of the homeschool kids on the mountain had come in and she was playing harp in the auditorium. And my mother like ran over to her mother and was like, who is your teacher? <laughs> and she drove me and my sister a hundred miles to our harp lesson and back. So 200 miles, basically every Friday for like eight years before my sister could drive. And we started, you know, we moved out and did our own thing and kept taking lessons on our own. But she was really dedicated to the idea of us playing something. And I think she just thought it was, was pretty or something. So thankfully she did. And, you know, there was a, (laughs) there was a point when I was like, I want to quit. This is lame because, you know, learning is hard and practicing is annoying. And my teacher was very, (laughs) I can relate. And really wanted me to, you know, to play like classical music. And I was like, eh. so I was like, I'm going to quit. And I like pitched this whole thing to my mother. And she was like, that's funny because no, you're not. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell? And then I was like, well, yes, I can't quit. And then that was, you know, that's it. So kept, kept doing it forever. <laughs> uh, how old were you when you, when you wanted to quit? Um, I started playing when I was eight. My sister started playing first and I should note because this has always been a sticking point, that I did steal the harp from her. (laughs) She played the harp first, and then I was listening to everything that she played. And then when I came in, I was basically, you know, like a a week behind her or something, even though I was six months later. And she's always been a little bugged by that. But anyway, I did steal the harp from her. Sorry, Anna. (laughs) But I mean, so you decide to quit. Your mom doesn't let you. But clearly, I mean, you've this is a huge part of your life from what I gather. Um, I mean, your website is ellaharp.com. So it is, yeah. (laughs) I wonder, what is it? that made you love it enough to, to, you know, see it this far? Well, I think like when I wanted to quit, what I didn't like was the music that I was playing. And what I wasn't so sold on in that moment was like the style of teaching that was being presented to me. And, you know, when I was like, I want to quit. And she was like, no, I think I was probably 11 or maybe, yeah, probably like 10 or 11. I've probably been out for a couple of years. Um, and it wasn't really fun anymore. And so I was like, yeah, I want to quit. She was like, no. And I am, first of all, so glad that she said no. Because, you know, and she didn't just 
listen to the little tyrannical me being like, I'm over this. And my 11 year old brain has totally thought out all the pros and cons. <laughs> and, you know, I obviously kept going. Um, but I think for me, what, what made it work was I was able to recognize, I was like, well, it's not that I don't like the instrument. It's that I don't like the music that I'm playing. I don't necessarily align with the teaching style that's happening right now. So it was pretty shortly after then that I started writing my own little tiny tunes, like little, little bits of things. And I found out that if I wrote my own music, then my mother would be so proud. And when we showed up, to the harp lesson, she'd be like, Oh, Carolyn, you have to write, you have to note what, you know, what my daughter wrote. <laughs> and Carolyn would be like begrudgingly writing down all these ridiculous little notes in my silly little, you know, five note tune or something. So I basically a a assigned writing music to like getting out of really having a lesson. <laughs> and I was like, well, this is cool. And then I just kept at it because it made, it made more sense to kind of like go that route. And then as I realized that what I was writing was sort of more along the kind of, you know, Celtic, I guess you could blanket statement say it as, or like sort of more traditional kind of music or whatever. So um, that got me more interested in sort of like Scottish and Irish music and all that kind of stuff. And then I ended up going to this music academy in Scotland where I studied traditional Scottish harp music and the Scottish Gaelic language. And it was... The only thing I was really kind of th that made sense, you know, because I felt like I kind of not like I had to go to college, but, you know, that was kind of the thing that you're supposed to do if you want to move forward and, and what have you. But in the States, you have to learn classical music or jazz, at least at the time. I haven't done much research into it since, but like that was pretty much it. It was classical yeah. or jazz and I was not interested in either of those. So when I found this like program in Scotland that was like, oh, you just, you know, take folklore as like an elective and like, we don't care that you can't do math. And I was like, well, that's fantastic. I'm going. <laughs> and um, yeah, the, the sort of music that I was playing was always really the most impactful thing to keep me interested in the instrument. And then after college, you know, the traditional music has always been a big kind of part of the core of, of what I, what I loved about it. But like, it sort of stopped ticking the boxes for me. And then you know, that's kind of when I started leaning more into my own songwriting. And that's when I started, you know, like writing actual, you know, songs that I was singing and having the harp accompany things. I brought it back up to the forefront. So it's basically just like really lucky, I guess, kind of like uh, re-envisioning of the instrument whenever it started to kind of fizzle out, except for that one time when my mom was like, no, yeah, you're still playing the harp. <laughs> Running a business is hard, but your email marketing doesn't have to be. With AWeber's easy-to-use email marketing platform, you can stay connected with your audience, write new content faster, sell more, and grow your business, all without having to become an expert in yet another business tool. Start today at aweber.com slash podcast. That's A-W-E-B-E-R dot com slash podcast. AWeber, simpler email marketing. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Let's talk about aging. It's inevitable, right? But what if I told you there's a new way to age? led by Solgar Cellular Nutrition. They believe, and I do too, that you can transform the way you age cell by cell with the power of cellular nutrition. As we age, our cellular function declines. Your regular multivitamins and minerals might not be enough to combat these age-related declines, and that's where Solgar Cellular Nutrition comes in. It's formulated with targeted cellular nutrients that work with your body's natural processes deep inside your cells to help you fight cellular decline and promote cell health across three benefit areas. It supports cell energy, repair, and vitality, muscle strength, and even glutathione production to help protect cells. So let's own our healthy aging narrative. Visit CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Again, that's CellularNutrition.Solgar.com to learn more. Solgar Cellular Nutrition. We go cell deep. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. You know, it's funny. I think you're really fortunate because unlike the harp, the tuba is one of those things you can't really, you know, do a whole hell of a lot with. So <laughs> I quit. After nine years, I was like, you know what? There's not a whole lot I can accomplish with this. And I remember my friends like, you want to guarantee you're not going to get laid in prom night, <laughs> serenade a woman with a tuba. Oh, my God. I think that's what my little sister played for like a, a hot minute there. And I think my dad described it as like farting elephants or something. It's so funny. Pretty much. Yeah, no, that's pretty much absolutely true. Um. So one thing, I wonder about your sort of college experience uh, going to Scotland. When you you know go in and live in a different culture for that long um, and you come back to the United States, you know, so they, they talk about two things. And I know, I know this from having studied abroad in Brazil, you know, you have sort of reverse culture shock. Uh, but I wonder, you know, what you observed in differences in terms of sort of how people are socialized there and, and sort of the value systems that people have when it comes to their lives. Uh, in a different in a country like Scotland versus the United States, absolutely, yeah. My culture shock was sort of amplified in 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 a handful of ways um, <laughs> leading up to everything. I had I had a bizarre sort of like um, education beforehand. So I went to school up to third grade, and then in fourth grade, I didn't really like my teacher that much. I ended up going through second grade twice, not <laughs> just because my friends. I was always in mixed classes, and then I was going to go into third grade. And my friend's group was in the younger class. So I just ended up doing second grade again. So I was always a little bit um, older than everybody. Um, sort of like going through regular school. And then I was homeschooled in quotes for a couple of years, but I don't know that I really did anything. And then in sixth grade, again, I went back to school. So sixth grade was like my jam. Like I was in public school and I was a person and I was like a little bit older than everybody, but it just made it so that I didn't really get picked on or anything. And then at that point, my sister who was 14 was not challenged at all in what she was doing. And my mom was a little concerned what directions she might go with her intelligence while not also being challenged with other things. And so somebody was like, oh, you should take her to the community college because she can take college classes. And, you know, if she's really smart, then that might be interesting for her. And so my mom was like, yeah, it's a great idea. So she started taking my my sister to the community college. At this point, I'd graduated, graduated. <laughs> I don't think you graduate sixth grade. I'd finished sixth grade. And she was like, well, you can go to seventh grade or you can come with your sister and I to the college. I don't really care what you do. 
but if you go to seventh grade, you might never see us again. And I was like, okay. And so I was like, well, I guess I'll go to college. So I actually started community college when I was 12, right out of sixth grade. And I never went to high school. I had like an online high school that was like supposed to be, you know, you do all, all this, you know, work and you're, it's all scheduled out, but you can technically do it in however much time you want. So basically we were through that high school just so that, you know, the college would allow us to take these courses. And through that, you could take 12 credits, 12 units a, um, a semester. And so, you know, which wasn't that many classes. So I, I take maybe like two or three classes, like a semester or something like a music class or, you know, whatever else that was interesting, like, you know, improv or, or theater or something like that or English or history or, you know, whatever seemed interesting, <laughs> but certainly never math. Um, and then, yeah, I do like 11 weeks worth of work and like a couple of days at the end of the semester with the online thing and like somehow get an A minus and then like move on to the next semester. But I, from then I ended up being like, you know, I was 12 and people, and especially in community college, you have, you know, all ages there. So you have people, you know, like my mom that were in their like forties and fifties and people up into their sixties. And then, you know, I'm just this like, <laughs> like awkward little 12 year old that's just bouncing around, like wearing all the worst possible. I think this is a good idea to wear when I'm 12 kind of stuff. So like, like I wore Crocs. It was, it was really truly really embarrassing. Although it was like the first class ever. <laughs> my mom like brought them home from some random like horse thing she went to and was like, look at these shoes. And 12 year old me was like, that's amazing. Those are mine now. And then that didn't last very long. But anyway, um, that's an aside. But yeah, so I ended up graduating <laughs> from community college when I was 17, just because I'd been there so long that they were like, yeah, you can, you can, you can go now. You just have to test into this some math class or something. And so I ended up like testing this math class, which is hilarious because like I took it, you had to take it like every semester. <laughs> and so I kept taking it, kept taking it. Finally, like I got out of like the basic one and then you could just take business math. And somehow because I had enough credits, cause I'd been there since I was 12, they actually like let me graduate, which was like super cool. But anyway, um, so my previous experience was basically American college. And even though I was a lot younger than everyone, and even though it was community college and I wasn't taking that many classes and it wasn't like. The, the pressure of the world wasn't really on me so much because I had all the time in the world effectively. But of course, you know, it was still like everything that you get right now is on your record forever. So you have to keep that. But um, when I went to Scotland, the whole school has 800 people and there were 17 people in my year on my course. So I basically went and, you know, over there, it's like, it's small enough that you're not picking classes. You, you have like one elective a year or something like that. But I basically went from what felt like American college to Scottish high school. <laughs> so it was like this kind of weird thing of like going, going, not going backwards, because obviously the education was quite challenging and super fascinating. And, and I love that aspect of it. But socially, it was kind of odd because I was already pretty weird by California standards. And I showed up like, hello, <laughs> I'm California weird. And it was like, okay, well, you're with 17 other people, 16 other people, I think it was 17 overall. Anyway, and it's like, here are all these other people. And you're studying traditional Scottish music. And most of these people are from Scotland. There are a few people from America, but it was definitely like, you know, sort of just throwing myself into this really small world where it was pretty clear pretty early on that I was like, oh, wow, I'm not really that much like these people. So it was hard to definitely hard to fit in and everything. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the sort of culture over there in general is that they don't really have as much. Maybe it's just, you know, that my mom was so heightened on this side of the spectrum. Maybe it's not as common over here either. But like there's this concept of like the American dream, you know, 
and like you can make anything happen or you can like everybody makes it all the time and that doesn't they don't really have that in scotland and you know people you know obviously i was in a, in a music academy so people were studying music and you know doing what they what they loved and what they wanted to do but there was something about something about it that was just like it seemed less like the you know gung-ho you can do anything it's the wild west make your way through dodge you know it was just kind of like i don't know it was more educational based for some reason and and seemed less like motivational like you can you can make it happen it was just almost more like a yep i play music and this is what i'm doing or i i do this and that's what i'm doing but i don't know it might have just been where i was at at the time frame but i think that was one of the things that struck me as interesting not that they aren't positive people but it was just interesting that there's less of that like you know <laughs> surprising to hear there's a lot less of the american dream in scotland <laughs> yeah you know, I think the other thing that, that's fascinating to me, is, you know, and I've noticed this with a handful of musicians, you know, you know as, as I've alluded to, the tuba is pretty much useless unless you're going to play in an orchestra. Uh, then, you know, you're literally waiting for somebody to die for a job to open up. <laughs> My dad talked me out of doing, you know, being a music major. Like to this day, I don't regret that because I've talked to friends that were an all state band with me who did it. And they're like, yeah, it's not, you know, your dad was pretty spot on. It's a pretty rough life. Uh but, you know, the the thing I think the, you know, your career in a lot of ways reminds me of somebody like Lindsey Sterling, because you take, you know, something that looks, you know, a, a certain like a certain form and, you know, sort of playing in an orchestra is what we typically expect of a harp. Um, sure. And I, to the best of my knowledge, I don't know how many harp parts are written into, you know, symphonies and stuff like that. I know assholes write you know one measure into symphonies with tuba parts because i had to play a piece it was a dvorak symphony in the berkeley orchestra when i was a student there it had one whole note in the entire <laughs> thing and it's like 45 minutes i'm just sitting in the back to play a whole note i was like is anybody even notice that i'm here um i was like why did he even write this into the piece did like you know somebody who played the tuba sleep with his wife or something this must oh, have just been classic. vengeance um <laughs> But I think the thing that strikes me as fascinating is you sort of look at this traditional way of doing things and you you reinvent it. And you know, I wonder why more people don't do that because I mean, I mean, anybody who goes to a Juilliard uh, or a Curtis type place, we just had this guy here who um, was actually uh, you know a, a, an alumni of Curtis. In fact, we're probably going to air your and his interview together in the same week because um, right. it, it makes sense to me now. But um, and he was saying like the same thing. He he looked at Lindsey Sterling as, as an example of somebody who kind of looked at sort of the traditional model of you know going around the world doing auditions, you know, praying for a job in an orchestra and ending up God knows where. And instead, she has built this just massive platform and more people hear her music than they ever would have if she had been sort of the traditional, uh, you know, go through an orchestra, you know, try to get to the point where your first violin and you seem to have done the same. What, you know, like, why is that? Like, what is it that enables people to do that? And why don't more people do that? Like, if you were to talk, for example, to a group of students at Juilliard today, what would you tell them? Oh, man. So I think my sort of way of coming out of of my shell anyway was just kind of starting to you know write my own music and and see where it took me like so i also play the banjo not very well at all sadly hilariously and crazily i've almost played it for 10 years now but i'm garbage at it i play like five chords i basically know nothing um but i write my own music on the thing and the way i look at it is that if you write your own music then even if you're you know technically wrong no one can really tell you that you are wrong because it's your music and it's just an instrument and it's just what you make that comes out of it that is what you have so 
you know, I think there's a lot of like, I think the perception is there that like, oh, if you play this instrument, like you have to play it this way, or you have to do this, or you have to do that. And I think it's, I think it's extra hard when it's instruments like, you know, like the violin or like the, like the harp or like, I don't know, maybe there's a really cool thing to do with tubas. Who knows? Maybe it's day is coming. Maybe it has more than one whole note in its future. But anyway, <laughs> like, there's all this, you know, sort of weight on these instruments. It's like, well, this is what this instrument does. And that's just what's up. And it's like, yeah, but no, because all of these things are instruments that, you know, they make music and that's what people have done with them. But there's so many things you can do with it. You know, there's so many ways to make music. There's so many creative places you can put these instruments and other genres of music that that make it so much more interesting to play. And not that there's anything wrong, of course, with, you know, sort of sticking with the general way of doing it. But like, I just think it's sad that this expectation that these things just have to stay in this space. And I think it can be hard, even as a creative person, to find, you know, your sort of feel comfortable taking it out of that. Like, I always feel like, I mean, I don't know that a bunch of harpists are going to show up with like cabbages and pitchforks and like throw them at me or something and shout with, with like torches or something at my gigs because they're going to be like, what are you doing? And that doesn't happen. But like, it's funny how much my brain still sort of expects that to like be the case. <clears throat> but really, you know, there's so many things you can do with it. Like there's so many things you can do with any of this stuff. Like I'm just waiting for somebody to like take harp and like put it through an effects pedal and like do like a seriously heavy metal, like screamo thrasher band or something. And like, there's there's pretty much... Most instruments can adapt to to so many different like musical spaces, and I just love to see people get there. So my advice is to just start developing, you know, your own style and start figuring out what you do that's interesting. Because if yeah. if all you're trying to do is follow what's laid out, you know, you, you're not going to find it. And but if you sort of dig yourself and you figure out what your influences are and you just kind of start writing something like you can come up with some pretty cool stuff, you know, and, you know, if, if you keep at it, then eventually you you will, you know, figure out what you want to do and, and where that sort of fits in there. And then it gets a lot more comfortable because you just sort of have a way of defining what you're doing. And then, you know, when you just keep doing it, it gets less and less awkward all the while. And there's less and less of the, you know, the back of your brain that's like, oh, the tuba gods are going to smite me tonight. <laughs> and then, you know, well, kind of keep at it. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that describes my sort of approach to podcasts in a nutshell. Like I, I don't, you know, listen to podcasts at all, which is really weird for somebody who's made a living <laughs> doing this. Um, I, you know, and I don't actually take course. I mean, I've only ever taken one course and I made sure it wasn't from somebody who was an online marketer. I was like, it was from an NPR storyteller because nice. I wanted to understand how he tells stories. Um, but beyond that, you know, I, I try not to let you know, sort of, because it's like you said, I mean, if you follow in somebody else's footsteps, the only place you're going to end up is where they did. Right. And that's already been done before. So yeah, yeah. finding your own voice so, is hard, but it's so, 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 so worth it. Like, you know, whatever, whatever that, that thing is. And like, I remember, I remember talking to someone not that long ago, I think they played violin or something. And I was talking about my sort of experience with things. And, you know, when I was out of college, I was pretty burnt out on harp. I was, I was pretty burnt out on, on music in general, to be honest, because, you know, I spent so much time with it being this like really kind of heavy thing, you know, it didn't really feel like it was expressing or it was representing me. And, you know, kind of finding my own way out of that was was writing my music and, and figuring out that I, I could still have music and myself present in it. And it didn't have to, you know, live in this little tiny box or something. But I remember speaking to someone who played the violin and they were like, man, like, I wish that I felt like I could have played my own music or like played in a rock band or like played, you know, bluegrass music or something. Cause it's like, you know, I think so much of why 
these instruments are abandoned in a lot of cases is just because it's like, there's just so much weight of playing like, you know, super old dead guys music all the time. <laughs> and, you know, like, <laughs> organized orchestras and like waiting for this one person to croak. So you can like have the one seat for like, you know, three weeks before you have a mental breakdown. It, it, it's, it's really, <laughs> you know, it's a narrow sort of calling, I guess, but it's, it's definitely right for some people, but if it isn't right for you, friggin' find your own way of doing things. Cause there's so many more things that you can do with it. And there, you have the, you know, sort of wow factor, which is always going to be helpful. So. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, where I, I want to finish with two sort of final areas, you know, I mean, I think the thing that really struck me about your story was this sort of DIY spirit, you know, like I said, when you, you know, wrote the words, I make my own underwear in your pitch. I was just like, yep, okay, that's definitely somebody I want to talk to because that is just <laughs> beyond um, weird. I mean, so one, how do people sort of develop that DIY spirit within themselves? Because I, I think, you know, when COVID started, there was a sense of sort of, oh, we can learn how to do anything. And I had all these brilliant ideas for all this furniture I was going to make and all these things I'd planned to do. And now I'm looking around my apartment, you know, you know, pretty much, you know, on the tail end of a pandemic thinking, shit, I really didn't do half the stuff <laughs> I thought I was going to do. Uh, but, you know, like that sort of, you know, DIY spirit to go and, you know, make a tiny house, sell your own underwear, like all these kinds of things. Like, where does that come from? I mean, other than your mother. Other than my mother. Yeah. For me, um, I think it, it stems from a few, a few things. So one is that I am unbelievably cheap. And that is one of the core ways that my lifestyle works. So sort of my, <laughs> my way of going into all this was like, you either make more money to afford more, or you make your bills smaller, you make your overhead smaller, and then you make it work with less. And that's sort of my my motto for, for everything, is just making everything work with less. And um, when you when you live like that, I like to think of me as like, you know, like being the richest poor person like out there or something, because it's like, you know, you're just sort of, you're sort of moving everything else around to sort of match whatever's coming in or not in that particular time frame. And um, I, I hate shopping. I really do. And you have to go to these goddamn stores and there's pink packs and everything always costs. <laughs> I'm so over it. Like I'm just so over it. And, and I am unbelievably picky about form and function. Like if something doesn't fit just right, it just, it drives me, it drives me batshit. And I am sitting there and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking about it and I'm redesigning it before I even, you know, before I even knew how to make anything. I was always like, why does this suck? And how can I make it better? And, you know, for many years, I couldn't make anything better. I could, I could make a lot of things worse, but like, Slowly, as I kept going with things, I started just kind of being like, well, you know, maybe I should try to do this or maybe I should try to do that. And when I started, first started kind of sewing again, you know, a, a lot of, I think my problem was that I was like, oh, I'm going to start sewing again. I'm going to make this grand dress or I'm going to make this thing or whatever. And that's always sort of what I tried to do. I was trying to make these things that are, to be honest, really impractical. And you're probably not going to wear that wonky dress very often. And you're probably not going to, you know, the things that you really aren't finding that practical in your day-to-day -day life. So when I got back into it, I was like, underwear is expensive. I am cheap. I hate shopping. This is made out of lace. Lace is like 10 cents a yard. Why am I spending $10 on this? And also, why am I not making this myself? So I bought a bunch of stretch lace. And, um, I was like, this time I'm just going to start making really practical things. So like a shirt that I will literally wear every day, like underwear, bras, like everything that, you know, everything I basically don't want to have to go out of my house forever. <laughs> things that are really hard to make fit that you don't want to go out for. So, um, 
yeah, I there was obviously kind of a lot of experimentation in there, but they're really not that complicated. And honest to God, when you can make a pair of underwear for like, I don't know how many cents, but like cents in eight minutes, like who would ra- who would rather do laundry or go shopping when you can make a pair of underwear for basically free in like eight minutes? Like you pretty much won the game of life at that point. <laughs> You're making me think I need to make my own boxer shorts just hearing that because boxer shorts are ridiculously expensive, too. It's like, wait a minute. These are $15 for three pairs. Seriously, Dude, you can totally do that. You can totally do that. And it's super like, you know, it's 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 maybe not the thing you tell people like first off the bat, but like it's, <laughs> it's just these cool things you can walk around being like, hey, I made my underwear. You know, <laughs> you don't say it, but you can think it. And like as you get better at it, like, I mean, I can't imagine like having anybody's anything. Like, I can't imagine wearing, <laughs> that sounds really weird. I can't imagine wearing someone else's underwear, but that is effectively what it feels like, you know, because it's like, if I didn't make it, then like, what's the point? And, you know, the, yeah. there's the like affordability thing. There's the practicality thing. There's the not leaving your house thing. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of like kind of phobias behind everything, but it's so damn practical. Like, you know, you just, if you need something, you just make it, you know? So it's like, and, and I told myself, as soon as I started to get a little bit better at it, I was like, if this is something that I can feasibly make, I am going to make it. So I'll, if I can, if something is accessible, affordable, and the quality that I'm looking for, I have no need to make it. So I do not make shoes. I don't make boots because I can find good boots made in America. I don't make jeans because I can find good jeans made in America that are, you know, on eBay or whatever that are still accessible to me. Um, I tried making socks. I tried sewing socks. And you know what? I was like, socks are okay. I can just buy socks on the internet. I'm okay with that. But uh, you know, I try to I try everything out as much as I can, and then eventually my brain's like, you know, you can buy that, so it's chill. But like, if I want a leather jacket, I sew a leather jacket, and I learn how to make a wow. leather jacket for the first time as I'm making the leather jacket <clears throat> or a coat or anything I have. Really, it's like if I can make this, I'm not allowed to buy it. So that stretches to anything I would use. If I need a if I need a bag, if I need a shopping bag, if I need a nice bag, if I need a dress for a wedding, if I need whatever I need, I am you know designing and making and I can't use patterns because my brain doesn't work that way. So I pretty much just cut shit till it fits, which is how I built my house incidentally. And it's funny because everyone's always like, oh, if you want to you know, do all these creative things, you need to have all this stuff super nicely laid out. You need to be really organized. And I think that's one of the things that kept me from being creative for a super long time because they're like, oh yeah, you have to be super organized and you have to measure everything and you have to do all this stuff. And I'm like, you know, I know it's less efficient, but what if I just cut it till it fits? And everyone would be like, no, no, that's not the right way to do it. But it's like, it totally works for me. (laughs) And so like just the idea of winging it and the idea of knowing that like, you know, I just don't buy something if I can make it. So it's like, if it's cold and it's winter and I don't have a coat, then I'm just going to like wear some extra sweaters unless (laughs) until I actually get the time to start sewing the coat. But it's, it's cool because it makes you like, like I'm redesigning everything like to a, to a fault. It's actually super, super annoying because I've started noticing my brain going this way with um cars recently (laughs) and i'll catch myself when i'm like you know i I have a great car i have an 87 suzuki samurai it's like a little box it's like my favorite thing in the world his name's sam he's a good boy but like he's two doors and he's a tin can but if you want to get something that's four doors suddenly everything is like this colossus and and you can't park it anymore and i'm like why are these so big (laughs) just to have two more doors like it doesn't seem like you need to have this much more space and but i'll I'll literally catch myself i'm driving down the road and i'm like dude you you, you, this is not the point in your life where you can design a car. Like you, you're not going to make a car. You have to, you have to stop. But like, you know, I, I take this into all kinds of different things. Like I play the harp, right? Harps are massive. And that pissed me off because 
I want to be able to travel with this thing. And like, that was sort of the biggest impact for me. And so I was like, well, I'll buy a small harp. I looked for small harps, nothing that I was looking for. And so I was like, well, I'll just make one then. And so I, I made it out of cardboard and cutouts and like piecing things together and like some vague idea of how I thought it would work. And then my, my ex at the time, who's still one of my best friends is a metal fabricator. And I was like, yo, um, what if we use the fact that aluminum is super light and super strong to build like a super tiny harp that I can like put in the overhead of an airplane and take with me anywhere? And he was like, that's ridiculous. And I was like, cool. <laughs> and then slowly but surely, I convinced him to make one. And like, it's the coolest thing because it like, it literally sounds like a harp and it's super small and it fits in the overhead of an airplane. And I was like, cool, this is great. My creativity is at its pinnacle. I'm, I'm, I've got this. this is amazing. But then I also play the banjo and I used to travel. I started playing banjo so I could travel because you couldn't take the harp. And now I could take the harp, but then I can't take the banjo anymore. And I'm like, well, this is bullshit. So I start designing like, I start imagining like a, a banjo that's small enough to fit inside my harp case. Because if I could make the harp from huge down to that size, the banjo scale going smaller is not really that much of a difference. So like I looked online and I bought like the crappiest one I could find. And then I found everything wrong with it and started redesigning it. And then I started making up the perfect concept of this like tiny banjo. And then I built that with like a baseball belt billet and like industrial aluminum piping for like the part that's like basically just finding like cheapest, easiest ways while something would still sound good and like make it. And so you know, and now I'm like conceptualizing cars and it's like super annoying because I don't know where it'll stop. But the cool thing, like, <laughs> you can pretty like, I have told my brain that whatever it can come up with, if I have, you know, any, any ability to do it, any resources to do it, any, like, if there's a will, there's a way sort of thing. And like the money that I spend or that I save, I should say, you know, not buying like b- bullshit bras and underwear, like is suddenly turned into this like super exciting project. And then you know, you get to make something that actually like works for the purposes. And that is like the pinnacle of like my existence. It's like mm-hmm. when I make, I, like, I would love to have everything in my life be a 10 at like, yeah. my harp is a 10. My underwear is a 10. <laughs> my clothes are, you know, pretty much at a 10. But, you know, the idea is to have everything be just the way that I want it. And that's a really, uh, you know, if, if you're trying to buy everything, it takes a lot of time. Everything takes a lot of time. But if you can take that and you know, internalize it and think about it and come up with a cheaper, cooler way or what have you of doing it, that's even better. You know, if you're, if you're plagued with that sort of like constant redesigning, then suddenly you can just turn everything that you have into a 10. And that's like the most exciting concept and the most exciting thing that I could do. So I guess it sort of started with, with, with sewing and has sort of morphed itself into all these other things. But I guess it really started. Yeah. It really started with when I, that dress I was telling you about when I was 19, I was like, this time I'm going to sew a dress and this time I'm not going to stop until it works. And literally mm-hmm. when I decided when I was 22, 21, that I was going to build a house, like a whole house, granted a small one, but like still a whole freaking house on a trailer. I was like, oh, I'm sure I can do that because I made that dress once. And in my head, it was like, that is perfectly correlated that, yep, a sewing a dress is totally the same thing as building a house with no building experience whatsoever <laughs> at all. But like, you know, if you have that in your head and you're like, well, I can just do that. It's so much fun to see what you come up with. And if you can keep an open mind and know that like, you probably won't get it right the first time, like there've been three harps, there's going to be another one, there've been two banjos, you know, there've been infinity of underwear and, you know, whatever else. But like, if you can get your yeah. mind in that space, like, it's so exciting to see what you can come up with and what you can create. 
Well, you know, I, I love this for, for numerous reasons. It's like a, a very practical approach to creativity. And much like yourself, I hate shopping due to an ex-girlfriend. And I remember thinking next time it's going to be, if you want to shop for lingerie, I'll shop with you for that. But that's about it. <laughs> like, that's the only reason I would ever go shopping with you. Because um, I had an ex-girlfriend who would literally spend four hours looking at shoes. Like, no guy should know what a patent leather peep-toe heel is. And I do. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so sorry. That's hilarious. Yeah. And I kind of have to wonder if, you know, you were Indian in a past life between the fact that you're cheap and your mom was always late. Those are all very, <laughs> you know, Indian qualities. That's awesome. I'll have to ask. <laughs> so uh, one final question before we wrap things up, um, or two more. So there's a, a line in a book that Heather, Havler, uh, Heather Haverleski wrote. Um, she had a, this book, a column called Dear Sugar on the Rumpus that later on was turned into a book. And she described creative people as misfits amongst misfits. And um, that always stayed with me. And so what I wonder is, as you know, when you're this like bizarre creative person who has a sort of multi-hyphenate career that takes you in all these directions, how does that impact your your relationships? Oh. <laughs> I yeah. just opened up a rabbit hole that'll take another hour for no, us no, to no, talk no, about. Don't worry, don't worry. I can make long stories fast. <laughs> no, and it, but what, it's interesting because, yeah, that's that's such an interesting um, aspect of everything because, um, relationships are definitely an interesting component of, you know, being the hard part is that like, when, when you, you allow yourself to, for your creative, you know, sort of tendencies to just kind of be like the main takeover, like at some point, you know, that there's sort of a, and, and not that there's anything particularly wrong with it, but there's sort of like a, a selfishness to that. And I think for me, at least that's been really healthy because a lot of my mindset is sort of like making sure that everybody's okay and making sure that, you know, somebody else is happy and make sure I'm doing all the things. And a lot of my anxiety, you know, is totally self-imposed, but gets sort of stuck on that loop of being like, okay, I need to make sure everything's fine. I need to make sure this thing's done or that thing's done for for this person or something, or this person's going to get mad at me if I don't do that. And a lot of me sort of embracing my creativity and moving forward with it like that was that like, <laughs> I just was kind of like, well, fuck that stuff. <laughs> I'm just going to do me. And um, yeah, I mean, I was in a relationship for seven years um, that was super awesome with my ex who still films all my videos and takes all my photos and design, you know, still builds my harps and stuff. So it's like, it was as amicable as amicable comes, but like, um, it pretty much wrecked my relationship. Like <laughs> I wrecked my relationship, but more specifically, like my creativity and all the things that, that I had this drive to accomplish were sort of, you know, the killers to it because it's a pretty selfish endeavor in a lot of ways. It's also super hard to have friends unless they have like goals like it's really hard to have friends that don't have goals because it, you're pretty much like that mega asshole person that's like look what i made today and it's like dude shut <laughs> up <laughs> and like uh. you know if, if other people have goals and they're working towards things too it's a little bit better but like for the most part like i just have such a hard time like connecting with women in general because they're just like dude I don't care. And I'm like, I know. And then, you know, there's like a silent moment. And I'm like, guess what I'm going to do? Or like, I, I made this thing and I'm so happy. And it's like, whoa, like not, you know, when I don't shop. So it's like, and not to totally like put women into some category where all they're going to talk about is like shopping or something. But it's like, there's enough things that are awkward about everything that I do that I'm like, I pretty much just, I mean, I have a lot of acquaintances, but I pretty much just pour everything into my creativity because I know that that I am happiest there. 
and everything else just kind of has to like fill in in the gaps. And I hate saying that because it's like, you know, you really should prioritize, you know, relationships and stuff and all that kind of what have you. But like, I mean, for me, it's like, I, I actually can't make myself do something that my body won't let me do. Like that, that's kind of one of the things that's been really helpful for me um, in my development as a person is that like, there'll just be these times when my body's like, yo, you actually have to do this now. And I'm like, no, I don't. And it's like, well, all right, well, I'm just going to make you super sick for a couple months and then you'll figure it out. <laughs> it's like, it just really won't let me. And so like, you know, it, that's what has gotten me, you know, this far, I guess though. And I think at a point I just have to realize that like, you know, there's different people, there's different, you know, people have different ways of living and different everything and everyone's an individual, right? And unfortunately, as much as I don't want to be the asshole that's just off doing my own thing and like, not caring about other stuff. And and I hope that it, it's not that to an extreme. But at a certain point, it's like, dude, I, I really just have to try. And I'm just balancing my own mental health by doing this anyway. So it's like, I would literally just like implode if I, if I weren't doing it. So, you know, my boyfriend now is like, <laughs> he kind of came in with this whole like, well, she's a wacko and she makes things all the time. And I might not see her for a few days if she's like locked up in this hole of like, you know, whatever creative pursuit is sort of happening in that time frame. But I think it's just being really honest with people and just, you know, it's kind of like a take it or leave it situation because I have really tried to be normal <laughs> and I just can't. So I don't really think there's any point in, in trying to do it. And, and I think a lot of it is like, for anybody out there, you know, that's like, feels this sort of same thing. It's like, I spend so much of my life, like trying to fit in and like trying to be normal. And I'm so over that shit. Like at this point, it's like, if I'm that different, then I'm probably just supposed to stand out. So I'm just not going to fight it anymore and just keep being weird. So, you know, relationships are super important and like feeling like you have that is, is those connections and that you can, you know, share ideas with people, you know, that's obviously really critical, but at a certain mm. extent, if you're, you know, if you're weird enough, like sometimes the people around you aren't your target audience, you know, they don't see what you see. And sometimes it's really, really hard to have people around you that you love that, you know, they're not the person you're, you're trying to reach with what you're doing. So like, it's hard for people sometimes to, you know, to be as supportive as you, as you want them to be, because they don't see what you see in your head. So, so yeah. much of it is just kind of like, continuing to like, it sounds so lame, but like continuing to like believe in yourself. It is literally the hardest thing I've ever consistently tried to work at in my life is the actual like, you know, the trite, like believe in yourself. But like, it's super hard because a lot of times the people you have around you don't, they can't believe in you the way that you want them to because they can't see the vision that you have. And they aren't your target audience, you know, they're your mother or they're your, I mean, not my mother, <laughs> she supports everything, but like, you know, they aren't the person that you're trying to, to reach with something. So it's like, you know, you really have to just, you have to be pretty self-reliant, you know, you have to use your own resourcefulness to get you out of the ruts that sometimes are imposed by p- the people that you love the most. Yeah. So, well, I mean, you know, it's, it's funny. And part of the reason I asked the question is because, um, you know, look like my parents have been on this like quest to try to set me up. And I was like, I don't fit the mold at all for any, you know, Indian parent, like my sister being a doctor, I was like, she's every Indian parent's dream come true. I'm every Indian parent's <laughs> nightmare come true, particularly, you know, and, uh, like my dad doesn't read my books. I don't think my dad has ever heard a single episode of this podcast, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> and it doesn't bother me anymore. Like I finally made my peace with that and realized I would never get that validation. But yeah, I mean, the, you know, when I thought about relationships, that was why I asked the question because, uh, you know, each time 
you know, I've had this conversation with my parents. I was like, what are you going to tell this girl's parents that I'm some weirdo artist who like hosts a podcast and doesn't have a real job? Like, that's probably not going to go over too well. <laughs> that's so funny. Uh, well, I um, have one final question for you, which I know you have heard me ask. Uh, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? What do I think it is that makes it unmistakable? You know, you just have to, like I sort of said earlier, like it's, it's you and your creativity for your entire life. It, all it is, is you. And honestly, there's other people, there's, there's distractions, there's things that come and go. If you can find a way to take your creativity and make your brain happy and make you happy and, and get in that space where your creative brain can actually do the processing that it needs to do. Like, I think that's like, at least for creative to me, that's like, that's the most I can make out of life. It's just give your brain the space to think about stuff, allow yourself to do it, keep believing in yourself and just, you know, just, just stick with it basically. Cause like you, you, there's no, there's no love to be gained from being stuck in somebody else's vision of how you're supposed to be. So, you know, the time will pass anyway. You might as well spend it being as creative as fucking possible. Wow. Um, I can't think of a more fitting ending. This has to have been one of my favorite conversations I've had this year. So glad to hear that. Thank you so much for having me on. I absolutely love to be able to talk through the wacky brainwaves <laughs> of other crazy people. My pleasure. Um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us. Where can people find out more about you, um, your work, and everything that you're up to? Absolutely. Ellaharp.com. Ellaharp, one word. You can find me on Instagram, Spotify, all those things for the music and stuff. But Instagram's kind of my main, my main jam for posting things that I make and creativity, I'm trying to get better at making YouTube videos, but it's so hard. <laughs> but yeah, Ellaharp, super, super excited to have been here today. Thank you infinitely. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.